Hi everyone and welcome to Bob Ride the Hour. I'm your host Jill. For this week we are going to feature an episode of a podcast that I did called What Was That Like? Um, It's hosted by Scott Johnson. He's a great guy. You should guys go over and check it out Um, and I will be with you when it's over. I hope you enjoy. Content warning. This episode includes descriptions of sexual violence and domestic abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Here in the United States, slavery is illegal. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was passed by Congress on January 31, 1865, and it was ratified later that same year. That amendment reads in part, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. But the fact that slavery is illegal doesn't mean it's non-existent. The more common modern day term for it is human trafficking. The numbers for this are staggering. Hundreds of thousands of people are forced into sexual exploitation just here in the U.S., and many of them are children. Ashton Kutcher is an actor, and he's also a father. He's become a major activist in the fight against human trafficking through his foundation and the software that his team has created. This is part of what he said when he appeared before Congress to talk about this. As part of my anti-trafficking work, I've met victims in Russia. I've met victims in India. I've met victims that have been trafficked from Mexico, victims in New York and New Jersey and all across our country. I've been on FBI raids where I've seen things that no person should ever see. I've seen video content a child that's the same age as mine being raped by an American man that was a sex tourist in Cambodia. And this child was so conditioned by her environment that she thought she was engaging in play. I've been on the other end of a phone call from my team asking for my help because we had received a call from the Department of Homeland Security telling us that a seven-year-old girl was being sexually abused and that content was being spread around the dark web and she had been being abused and they'd watched her for three years and they could not find the perpetrator, asking us for help. We were the last line of defense. An actor and his foundation were the potential last line of defense. That's my day job. There's another person who's also very active in this fight. Her name is Jill. She knows about human trafficking because she was a victim of it. She's had some truly horrifying experiences, things that no person should ever have to go through. But she's still here, and she's doing everything she can to help put an end to it. And part of that fight is telling the story of what it's like from the inside. 
I wanted to mention one thing that you might notice while you hear Jill talking about what happened to her. She laughs. She might be describing something that was truly terrifying, but part of talking about it is laughter. She and I actually discussed this, and she's aware of it. It's not because she looks back on what happened and actually thinks it's funny. A little bit of nervous laughter is just her way of coping as she talks about her experiences. Just wanted to give you a heads up about that. Now, here's Jill. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Do you think your childhood played a part in what happened to you later in life? Um, I think it definitely laid the foundation for everything that happened afterwards. Unfortunately, like 96% of trafficking victims are abused as children. And, and that's where my story starts. I was victimized by a family member as a child. And that led to some pretty drastic decisions, like getting married at 18 to someone who was 31 years old. He was... <laughs> quite the trip he was he was not uh, at all what he advertised himself to be that marriage went sour pretty quickly unfortunately he just made a lot of decisions that put me in harm's way that were, he was posting ads on craigslist to have men come and sexually assault me it was just a constant battle of being a victim and after a childhood of being a victim, it just kind of continued. Yeah, I mean, it was just normal to me, unfortunately, because of what happened as a kid and what I grew up in. It didn't seem out of the norm for this to be what a man was using me for, because that's that's what's been happening since I was five. And so for it to continue into my marriage was is pretty on track for child abuse victims. Usually in a situation like that, it's difficult for the woman to leave. How did you get out of that? Honestly, I was young enough that I still had some feistiness left in me. And so I was able to kind of just pack up my stuff uh, while he was away at work one day and get in my car and I left. And I went to a domestic violence shelter. They helped me file for a restraining order. He violated it quite a few times and spent several nights in jail. And after moving, I chose to move a couple hours away from that town. Uh, he finally did eventually start leaving me alone. And then he passed away a few years ago. Well, you don't have to worry about him anymore then. Yeah, that, that problem solved itself. <laughs> so that at this point, you are single again, and then you got pregnant. Yeah, I was just... Um, 
I was just, I was young. I was making some young life decisions and I wound up getting pregnant. My mom luckily came in and, and rescued me from that situation. And we lived with her for a little while and things just weren't working out. And my dad said, Hey, I've got a rental, you know, that you can live at. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. So I finally had my own place and some freedom to kind of start <laughs> being a mom and being single. And I met a man on Plenty of Fish. God bless that app. And for people that don't know, that's a that's an online uh, dating app. Yes, and it's probably the worst one available. It is it lots of scams, and it's just not. Most of them are not real people anymore. The man that I met off of there, we went on one date. We went out to dinner, um, and we had then coordinated for him to come over for lunch the next day, and naive young me gave him my address like way ahead of time which word to the wise don't do that people don't need your address if they're not coming over right now <laughs> and so he showed up like several hours earlier than we had planned to meet and I was kind of caught off guard by him showing up he came into the house and so I'm kind of like well do you want a tour <laughs> and as we're walking through I show in my bedroom and he proceeds to rape me in front of my child and my child is screaming, I'm screaming. It was a very crazy, chaotic, traumatic, like all my brain could think was I've got to get the sheets in cold water to get the blood out. Like, <laughs> I don't know why it just kicked into like cleaning mom mode. And I called a friend of mine. She's like, you have to call the police. So that's what he did. He called the police. My father actually came over and, and picked up my child I was able to file a report after that, and they did end up catching him. But <laughs> my father was kind of over it at that point, and he felt like I was being irresponsible, and I had let you know let this happen to my to myself that I had caused this, you know, somehow. And he decided to drop us off at a homeless shelter, like forty five minutes away from everyone that we knew. I'm just blown away by this. You were staying at his, I mean, he provided you this place, right? Your dad. Yeah, he wasn't ever really um, much of a dad anyway. This was probably the most fatherly-like action he had ever taken. I was super surprised by it in the first place. So it's not unlike him to abandon ship when things got hard. But it definitely put me in a predicament with a child and no job and no car and trauma again. More trauma. And this was not, not that any rape can be described with the word normal, but this was pretty violent. Yeah. So he actually had sharpened his fingernails to a point before he got there on purpose. And by the time I got to the emergency room, they said I had over 400 open wounds on my legs and my vagina just from him. Uh, whatever he was doing, <laughs> there was just a lot of, so I was covered in bruises. I was, there was blood all over my bedroom, the hallway, the bathroom. The detectives that came to my house actually said that this was one of the bloodiest rape scenes they had ever seen. And she just kept profusely apologizing that they couldn't clean it up for me. <laughs> and this is the event that your dad decided was the final straw and you need to go. Yeah. That's, that's just what... Uh, it, I have no words. I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't either for that 45-minute car ride. That was the most awkward car ride of my life. 
at this point, you're really more vulnerable and helpless than ever. No job, no car, no money. And a baby. And a baby. And what a position to be in life. And we haven't even gotten to the main bad part of the story yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is just the uh, the prerequisites. So, I mean, I was pretty much in the most desperate situation, I think, I've ever been in as an adult alone in the world, like literally removed and isolated from everybody that I knew with no resources for real. You know, the shelter offered minimal, we'll give you a ride to a job fair, but we're not going to help you get to the job. So, right. Because their resources are limited too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the staff that are there, unfortunately, with shelters and stuff, the staff, there's a high turnover rate. You get a lot of people that are there for a paycheck and they don't really care. And they just kind of are like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so the, I think the intentions are good when, you know, but unless you have a staff that's really dedicated, it's just hard. There were a lot of other women that were in the shelter long term. And so the longer I was there, we got to know a lot of them. And one of the girls, she suggested that I download this video chatting app so that I could meet people and you can like talk to anybody from all around the world. She's like, you get a lot of like Indian guys that want to pay you to get married, but like, there's also some really cute guys that talk and I'm like, okay. So I download this app and I talked to quite a few different people at first, some of them consistently, some of them not. That was when I met Jack. Jack messaged me and instantly I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> he's so cute. <laughs> like, starstruck, like, oh, wow. I mean, just always in like nice, all of his pictures, he had suits and like designer clothes. And it just, you could look at the picture and you knew he smelled good. He just was super attractive. And he, I remember he had the word gentleman and his username. And I remember thinking like, that's what I need right? Like, <laughs> I need a gentleman because I've had this weird, crazy life. And, you know, so we talked back and forth for several months, both with video and with text messaging. And he just really like kind of stepped in and filled this void that I had that, you know, and told me that he cared about me and told me that he loved me and told me how pretty I was and offered to send me money. And, you know, just was super supportive. It was super attractive, especially at the point where I was at in my life, where I had like nobody. My family was like, you know, ditched. <laughs> and so I have this stranger who's being even nicer than my family is. So I was just completely enthralled, like right away. Yeah, he was providing what you were craving. Yeah, and he knew that. He asked the right questions to get the answers that he needed so that he knew which vulnerabilities to attack. Um, and that's kind of how the grooming process started was in that beginning phase of him being so caring and so listening and wanting to know every detail about me was just giving him bait for later for when he went on the attack and wanted to manipulate me and use my feelings to hurt me. Did you know where he was located when you were talking to him? Yeah, he told me right away that he was in New York. Um, he told me how much money there is there. There's just everybody is hiring. You, There's no way that you could come there and not get a job. And the pay rate is so much higher there. And I'm, 
I just trusted everything he said, like things that I could have Googled, but because of the relationship that we had built, like I just trusted him. There were certain things that I just didn't look into because I didn't feel like I needed to. Did you know what he did, what his work was? Yeah. So he sent me, I actually asked the question because after several week or two of video chatting, I noticed that he was always in hotel rooms and I'm like, why are you never at your house? And he's like, oh no, I work for this marketing company and I travel. And he sent me ID cards and paycheck stubs and showed me how much money he made. And he's like, I could even possibly get you on with my company. It just depends. And everything seemed super legit. He told me his name was a different name, not Jack. Um, I didn't find that out until I got there. But the name that he gave me when we were talking over the app was not his correct name. <laughs> but the the stuff that he sent me, the name the name tag from his job had his picture on it and the fake name. Like the paycheck stubs had the fake name on it. So obviously it had all been created to yeah. present this story that was completely false. Yeah. I just didn't figure it out till it was too late. How did he get you to come to New York City? Um, so he had told me that we were just going to work for 30 days. He's like, I know a place that you can get on as a bartender. You'll make a whole bunch of money. He's like, I bet you can make anywhere from five to $600 a day. He's like, if you come out here and we bust it out for 30 days, he's like, we'll save up enough money. We can move back to your hometown and get an apartment. He's like, so if you can just find somebody to watch your kid for like 30 days, then we'll move back and we'll get an apartment and we're going to live our life together. And you know, this happy fantasy couple. <laughs> and so I found somebody, I was like, Hey, look, I just need you to watch my kid for a little bit. I, you know, I got this job and I'm going to go and I'm going to make all this money and it's going to be great. And I'm going to be able to start my life over at this point. I'm just sitting here. I'm like, I'm doing this for my kid, but I need you to watch my kid so I can do this. That had to be a pretty good friend for somebody to agree to take a child for a month. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily I was blessed with someone at the time who was, who was just she was already qualified as a foster parent through the state, but all of her foster children had moved out. She currently had an empty home. And so I think it was kind of, she needed it as much as I did. He sent me money for a Greyhound. I bought a Greyhound ticket and it was a 24 hour bus ride because everything takes longer on Greyhound. And the whole bus right there, I was super excited, super happy. I'm going to meet the love of my life and he's going to help me get a job and we're going to get married and all of the fantasy things. <laughs> um, and then I get to New York and I get off the bus. He's waiting for me there at the bus station and he grabs my bags and helps me. We go and jump on a subway and it, we're just kind of doing this. You know somebody because you've been video chatting and texting, but you've never seen them in person. So there's just kind of this awkward, you know, hour or so where you're like staring at their face, like trying to put the voice and the face together. <laughs> and so there wasn't a whole lot of talking. I just kind of followed him and looked at him and took in the whole situation. And I'm to I'm like, you know, soaking in New York and I see the, the New York Times building for the first time, which is huge. And something you can't imagine until you see it. Yeah. Just being in New York City for the first time yeah. is overwhelming in itself. Not to mention all the other stuff going on. I didn't know like that many people could exist in one space. 
but he he made it pretty quickly we got you know from the subway i think then we took a bus and then we took a cab after we got off the bus (laughs) and we ended up at his house he takes me to like the side door and i remember thinking like that's weird (laughs) people here don't use their front doors (laughs) and so the side door opens up to a staircase one goes up and one goes down it's kind of like a split level dealio and he takes me down into the basement and there's another locked door at the bottom of the stairs he unlocks that door and we go in and i'm kind of like trying to like not look like i'm suspicious but I'm like super suspicious. So I'm trying to like look around and soak it in and see like, how do I get back out of here? I don't know. I just, this is a weird place. It's unknown. You know, there was a little bit of normal nervousness there. We get down there and he's like, I'm sure you want to take a shower, right? He's like, why don't you go ahead and go freshen up? Cause I had been on a bus for 24 plus hours. So I hop in the shower. I'm getting all that done. I come out in a towel and he has opened my luggage and like taken all of my clothes and things out and like spread them out and has them all (laughs) and he's like I picked out your outfit and I'm like oh okay that's weird I think I don't know or it's cute I'm I don't know (laughs) but okay and he's like are these the highest heels you brought and I'm kind of like chuckling to myself because at this point in my life I cannot walk in high heels to save my life I just was being super ambitious when I bought those at Goodwill. And so I'm like, yeah, definitely. Those are the highest deals I brought. He's like, okay, you'll wear these. And I thought, okay. And so I put on the outfit that he's picked out and I'm like, well, this is a little, you know, but hey, it's New York, right? So everybody has their skin out. (laughs) It's fine. I'll be fine. We go to leave for dinner. So I thought. And we're walking and we take a cab again and a bus at some point and we get off and where we get off at is like this industrial, I don't know, metal and concrete, like not, there's not lights. Like it doesn't look like New York. It looks like, ugh. <laughs> I don't, it was just scary and like alley back you know the lights are flashing because like they kind of work but they usually don't I'm kind of looking around at him and I'm like um are we going to dinner (laughs) he's like um yeah yeah no no we are hold on I just I gotta talk to you for a second and I'm like okay and so he just grabs my hand and keeps walking so I walk with him and we get to this like kind of intersection of alleys and there's this giant concrete parking block and he kind of has me sit there lean against it and he's like oh do you have your phone real quick and I'm like uh yeah why so I pull it out of my pocket I'm telling you the second I pulled it out he snatches it out of my hand and I was like what like quicker than I could react and he hands me another phone just a like an android just one you buy at Walmart cheap disposable like and he's like here you go this has my number programmed in and I'm like wait, what? Hold on. Where's my wire? Why can't I? And at the time I had a phone wallet. And so when I handed him my phone, he got my phone and my driver's license and my social security card and my debit card. And I think I had a food stamp card in there at the time. He had all of it. He he had it. And he's like, no, no, I just, I want to make sure that your phone is safe. 
and he like gave me some spiel about something. I, I don't really remember a whole lot of what he said. It was kind of a blur. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking it's with all this happening, your head has to just be spinning. Like, what does all this mean? And well, and I'm just kind of staring at him. I, I think at that point I was in the freeze mode of panic because I'm trying to like understand and comprehend like what's happening. Like, I thought we were going to dinner. Why do you need my phone? Why do I need a different phone? Like what's happening, right? I'm really hungry. <laughs> like, and so I'm trying to process all of this. And so he looks at me and I think he can tell I've got like a deer in the headlights kind of look. Cause I remember he grabbed me around my shoulders and just kind of gave me like a, Hey, and he's like, look at me. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, so the cars are going to stop. He goes, they'll flash their light at you. Or sometimes they'll just stick their arm out the window and wave you over. And I'm like, Okay. He's like, yeah. So then you just go up to the window and you tell him how much it is for head and how much it is for sex. And I'm like, what? Uh, what? You want me to do what? And he's like, no, believe me, it's no problem. He's like, the cops around here are super cool. He goes, actually, they might stop you too because they usually like to get some, especially when it's a new girl. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking to me about? Next thing you know, as he's standing there, like he starts to kind of walk away and I'm like, Hey, 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 wait, no, no, no. I thought we were going to dinner. He's like, we are babe. He's like, but you've got to get the money first. And I'm just like, what in the world? I can't imagine the disconnect you would have right then. Yeah. Just like carpet ripped out from underneath of me. And I didn't even have time to process. Like by the time he's walking away, I'm still comprehending that I'm supposed to go up to cars that are going to stop and flash their lights at me. And I'm like, did he say, head? did he say head? Cause like I, I was a naive young, I mean, I had a child, even though I had a child, I just w had not experienced a lot in the sexual world. And so I was really like, <laughs> you want me to do what? <laughs> and so this just, it wasn't long before a car pulled up and flashed their lights. And I am looking at the back of him walking away. And he, he kind of, he sees the car flash his lights. He looks at me and he waves me on and I'm like shaking like a newborn baby giraffe and I cannot walk. And so he turns around and he comes back down and he's like, I forgot to tell you, you have to stay in the street. You can't stay on the sidewalk. And I'm like, what? And he goes, Another pimp can take you if you stand on the sidewalk. So you have to stay in the street. He's like, I'll explain all the rules later. Let's just get the money for dinner. And walks back away. And I remember thinking like, it, it, a light bulb flashed on. And I was like, did he say pimp? And that was when like everything just clicked. And so this car is continually flashing the lights at me and waving at me. And about that time, a police officer pulls up. And I'm like, yes, I'm getting saved. Ha ha. <laughs> that was short lived. <laughs> you know, here we go. <laughs> and right at that time, Jack walks up and leans into the passenger side window of the police car and they are start laughing and joking. I can hear them loudly laughing. And Jack stands back up and he's like, get off the sidewalk. And the gentleman in his vehicle is still trying to get my attention. 
and the police officer comes over the loudspeaker and he's like she's just trying to catch a date man and like makes a joke calls me the b word i'm pretty sure it was there was a lot going on at once and i just remember thinking oh my gosh the cops they're he was right like he was serious like they're in on it like they don't care like they're not coming to save me did you think at that time of, of any possibility that you could just run away or escape somehow? I didn't have anything. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a debit card. I didn't have any money. And I was so, I was just so caught off guard. I was like, well, I don't even know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so for some reason, the young me just thought, okay, if I just do this, then like, I'll get the money and I'll figure out how to get away later. Like, let me just make it through right now. Like, let me not get myself into more of a situation. There was something about him. He was so commanding of like, the manipulation had already started before I got there. So I was already enthralled with him. I was already kind of in love with him. You know, I had that young <laughs> lustful love and so that clouds your judgment already and makes you make stupid decisions there was just a lot of layers when he said it it didn't sound like I had a choice I was so used to taking commands from the men in my life that this felt like the same thing this is these are the relationships I'm used to so it was kind of there was there's a normalcy for me in being obedient, unfortunately. So I kind of snapped back into the trauma side of things of, okay, wait, I know, I know how to do this. <laughs> I know how to handle this situation. You comply and you make it out later. <laughs> so that was your, that was your first night experiencing that. Yeah. And it didn't ever stop after that. Um, it's pretty consistent especially once he figured out how much money I could make. There were not a lot of white girls in that area of New York, especially that were out working the streets where I was at. And so I kind of became a hit there for a while and he was making some pretty good money. But eventually there are undercover detectives that do come out on the track, uh, which is where the girls walk. So you have to, you can't be there every night. It's just not possible. You'll go to jail. And the amount of fines that you pay makes it not worth it. So he had to find something to do with us. And I say us. There was me a majority of the time uh, throughout the years. There were sometimes other girls. It just kind of varied. Some come, some didn't, some stayed, some didn't. <laughs> some he would pick up and take everything out of their purse and kick them out on the side of the highway. So you just never knew what he was going to do. But he had us in the basement for several months. I, I kind of lost track of the days. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. It's hard sometimes giving time frames um, just because when you're up all night long and sometimes when you're awake for 24, 25, 26 hours at a time, you forget how many days have passed and what was yesterday and what was today. And so a majority of his business with with me happened at night. So I did a lot of my sleeping during the day. I did convince him to let me call my mom at one point, but he was sitting right there. And so at that point, that was several weeks in, there had already been some violence. It was pretty quickly that he would 
punch you or backhand you or bust your lip or make a nosebleed. <laughs> that was pretty much right off. As soon as you said no or disagreed with anything that he said. So making that phone call with him sitting right next to me, I, I didn't dare say anything that would have cost me after I hung up <laughs> because he had already made so many threats of violence and there had already been examples physically of violence. And I was just pretty scared and also in love. It's a very weird place to be. Yeah. That's one of the things I was, I, I, I've heard you say this, that part of your motivation was to make him proud. Yeah, there was, you know, so there's so much manipulation that goes on and there's so many layers of Jack's game that, you know, one of the things that he used to say to me all the time, because he made me and whatever other girls were there, he made us call him dad. And he used to tell me that the reason that you're with me is because your father didn't do his job. And that's why I'm your dad now. And it was really hard to argue with that because it was like 100% true. And so he would manipulate you with things that were right. He just used them against you and made himself in control. So, you know, I'm a traumatized, desperate, <laughs> lonely, heartbroken, fatherless woman who has a man who steps in and who's like, look, I will protect you. I'm going to do everything for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to clothe you. You can get your nails done. You can get your hair done, but you have to do this one thing for me. And that's how he eventually sold it to me. If you keep doing this, all you have to do is this one thing. He'd say, this is the easiest job in the world. You don't even have to think about it. He's like, I'll do all of the thinking for you. And then it, you know, it progressed. It went from walking on the track and, stopping cars and doing, you know, sexual acts in vehicles all night long to going to hotels. And he was posting me on Backpage, which is actually now been shut down by the federal government. The website no longer exists because they have been convicted of human trafficking. They facilitated it knowingly and accepted money for it. <laughs> so. Well, and Craig's, Craigslist was used for that for a long time too, right? Craigslist was a big one. Um, they removed their personal section. I'm sure I haven't looked into it lately. I'm sure they found another way. It's probably under pets or something, but yeah, that's, that's a, a common one. There's a lot of, a lot of sites. Honestly, there's a lot of options. I did not know this before I went to New York, but there are a lot of sites online where you can find girls for sale. And the problem is, is that you don't know that the advertising that you're seeing is true. All of those ads looked like I posted them. They had my photos. They had my face. They had my phone number. I answered the phone when you called. Nobody knew that he was standing in the shadows, controlling my every move, taking all of my money, not allowing me to see my son, not allowing me to call my family, you know, isolated, groomed and manipulated. <laughs> sold a fantasy. He told me we were going to get married and have five sons. And I believed that I was going to be his wife. <laughs> so all this time you were there, what were you thinking as far as your son? Were you able to contact the friend that your son went with? Minimally. I did. After lots of begging, I was able to set up a way to send them some money. That was my biggest thing. I was like, look, 
I'm paying you over a thousand dollars a day. Can I send my kids some money? Just a little bit, like, please. And so I did get to get that set up. And then um, some issues arose legally. They were needing to provide care for him and they didn't have any documents. And so Jack actually bought a round trip ticket for me to go to my hometown and sent me with the money to pay for a lawyer and get guardianship transferred over to my friends. He made it very clear if I did not use that return ticket, that there would be consequences. So a lot of, I've had that question a lot. People are like, what, you were out? <laughs> like you were gone? Like, why did you go back? Like he has everything. He had my driver's license, my social security number, my mom's address, my kid's address. He made it very clear. Like there were threats of violence against all of these people if I disrupted his plan at any point. And so I went, I took care of the situation. I signed guardianship over of my son. I bawled the entire time I was signing the doc the documents. And I know people listening to this now are just blown away that you were manipulated to such a point that you were signing away the guardianship for your for your child. He used to tell me on a regular basis that my child needed a real family, that my child needed a real mother, not a whore. He's like, you know why I love you? Because you're a good whore. He's like, but you know why your child needs a different family? It's because you're a good whore. It was like this backhanded compliment of like, I mean, thank you, I guess. I'm good for somebody. I don't know. <laughs> it's just, and it leaves you in, well, he's right, right? Because that's what I'm doing. That's what he's convinced me that this is all I'll ever be. This is what I'm good at. This is what I was made for. And so he was playing on your love for your child, that this is what's mm -hmm. better for the child. Yeah. And so I listened because he had been right about everything else. He was kind of, you never knew when he was going to erupt or just no, lash out. Never. And then it progressed. So when we got to the point that we're traveling from state to state, and we're going to different hotels. Um, I think it was 14 different states that he eventually trafficked me in. Sometimes he would go with us and drive you there or be outside waiting or watching or whatever the heck he was doing. There were other times that he would send you on a Greyhound. He would stay in New York and he would send me to North Carolina to go to some hotels and he would post all the ads on Backpage and Craigslist. And and I had a daily minimum and we had ways I had to send that money to him through prepaid cards and all that kind of thing. And you never knew, even if you were 12 hours away from him, he would drive in the middle of the night and show up at four o'clock in the morning, banging on your hotel room door. And if you were sleeping when he showed up, heaven forbid, if you were sleeping when he showed up, it, automatically you were getting beat. He hated to find you sleeping. I, it was like, that was the biggest offense to him, was sleeping. <laughs> he used to tell me all the time, if you train your body, you can function on two hours of sleep. You can do it. I believe in you. Yeah, I'll bet he didn't, though. No! <laughs> No, he got drunk and partied and slept till noon. There was something I've heard you talk about that is called holding court in the, in the mm -hmm. street. What was that? Kind of back to the rules of the track. If you are 
on the street. That's where the girls are supposed to stay. And the pimps are on the sidewalk. Also, pimps could be in their vehicle. There was a situation where I was walking on the street. A pimp was yelling at me from his vehicle. And I followed all the rules. I did not make eye contact with him. I did not engage in any conversation with him. I didn't address that he was even there. I continued walking and doing what I was supposed to do. And he bumped me with his vehicle. At which point, I then engaged in conversation with him because you just hit me with your car. (laughs) And so whenever Jack walked up, this man immediately kind of cowered down and was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize she was yours. I didn't realize I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's like, but you know, she talked to me. She engaged in conversation with me. And Jack says, did you? I said, only after he hit me with his vehicle, I asked him why he did that. But and and Jack said, well, I, I don't feel that that's wrong. And he's like, no, man, she talked to me. She talked to me. She engaged with me. She's mine. And this man proceeds to come and try and pick me up physically and was going to put me in his vehicle, at which point Jack interfered and and took me back. I don't, it's a very odd situation to be like a ragdoll, like literally having men fight over you. So he grabs me back and kind of throws me behind him. And he's like, nope, we're going to hold court before anybody's taking anybody. And he's like, all right, that's fine. So everybody gathers up their friends and um, you have to be a pimp that's known among the other pimps in the area or whatever. I don't know, however you get into their group. And so they're standing in a circle and I am on my knees on the ground in the middle of the street. And Jack says, I'm going to allow this hoe to tell her story. And if at any point, any one of you feels that she's lying, I want you to kick her in her face. And, um, that was the most, one of the most terrifying nights. I mean, other than the nights where Jack was just beating me up because he was drunk or mad or whatever, that was one of the, like, I thought if all 14 of these men kick me in the face, I'm going to lose my life tonight. So well, I better make this really convincing. <laughs> and uh, luckily I did. I told my version of the story. The other man told his version. He stuttered through and they believed me. Nobody kicked me. And that was kind of the one of the first big situations where Jack was like, look, I told you. He used to say all the time, if you pray to the to the game gods or to the pimp gods, they'll bless you, you know, pray to the spirits of hoes past and they'll protect you and blah, 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 blah. And, and if you just do the right thing, if you do the course, you know, you stay in, you know, everything pays off. And, and he's like, you know, do you see how my instruction has saved you tonight? How I I've saved you. But he saved me from a problem that he created. I would have never been in this situation if it wasn't for him. (laughs) But the narcissistic mind control, you don't see it like that when you're in it. You just see that you got saved and somebody cared. And somebody was there and they had your back and made sure nothing happened to you. And you've got nobody else. No. I wanted to ask you this. I, I live near Tampa, and we have a football team here and the stadium, of course. And so some years the Super Bowl is held here. And I've always heard that the week of Super Bowl, the volume of human sex trafficking around here just skyrockets. Why does that happen? What's the connection? 
unfortunately, um, anytime you have a large event like that, that draws a lot of tourism, you get a lot of high spending single men that have free time or they have a business meeting in the morning and they've got the rest of the afternoon or the game is tonight or they're golfing tomorrow. And anytime you have a large tourism event, you have people that are coming to spend money and anywhere there's men and money. Jack used to say you can find a trick. And that's true. Not just the Super Bowl, but any, any big event, usually sporting events though. Yeah. Any big event. Um, Jack sent us to one of the World Series to work. Have, has anyone ever sort of blamed you, like saying you you chose to go to New York? I mean, I blamed myself first. I mean, I I that's one of the biggest you know things that I deal with is you know the lack of trust in myself because I made the decision to go. I do have a lot of people though that have said, you know, well, you, you signed up for the, you know, you put yourself on a bus and went and met a stranger. And yes, I did. Um, I did do that. <laughs> I did not go with the intentions that I was going to be a prostitute and sign my kid over and just screw my life. <laughs> like that was, that was not the plan. So as much as I get, you know, I think people just don't understand. This is a hard situation mental manipulation, Stockholm syndrome, narcissism. It's a, it's a crazy mixture of a lot of stuff that, that led me to make decisions that I would not have normally made for myself. On your podcast, which we'll be talking about here in a few minutes, you go into a lot of the real gritty details of what you had to go through when you're meeting these I don't know. I don't even want to call them men. You call them tricks. That's the common term. Yeah, that's tricks or Johns. Okay. We're not going to go into all the detail of that here. People can listen to your podcast and, and, and hear that. But this lifestyle, this what you were doing every night really caused you some health issues. Yeah. I mean, it, it affected my body physically. It affected me mentally. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in the hospital after I got out. Um, I was admitted for weeks. <laughs> uh, we had to treat things like pelvic inflammatory disease and just STIs and things that, you know, that happen when you go without medical care or, or proper attention for a long period of time and, and you have multiple sexual partners and just everything that, that went into the trafficking as a whole. I think you said it was a really bad case of kidney stones that kind of led to you being able to escape. Yeah. So, um, because of my unhealthy diet and eating out all the time, and I lived off of Starbucks from the gas station, <laughs> I developed kidney stones actually a couple times while I was in the trafficking. Um, the first few times I was just in severe pain, but they ended up passing and it wasn't a problem. The last kidney stone that I got, I had been vomiting and sweating and in pain for several days. I was having trouble moving. I couldn't hardly walk. Um, and Jack did not care. He wanted, I had a daily minimum that I had to meet. And, and that was that no matter my physical condition. So I continued to work and I begged him, I said, you know, can I please go to the hospital? Something is wrong. Eventually, he did drop me off at a hospital. <laughs> I went in and they did several procedures. It, the kidney stone was too large. It wouldn't pass. So you had to have surgery. Yeah, they actually had to go in and, and get it all out. 
And so when I was finally discharged, I sat and waited. Jack didn't show up. I think I waited outside of the hospital for like three or four hours. It was insane. I, it was a long time for someone who's in pain. And he, Jack did finally show up. And I remember thinking while I was sitting there, like, why don't I just leave? But I think I was so stubborn at that point. I was so, I had given so much. At that point, I had probably given Jack at least $500,000. And I had nothing. I had zero. I had zero dollars in my pocket. And I was like, there's no way. If I'm going to leave here, if I'm going to finally get away from him, I'm, I'm leaving with something. I'm going to take something with me. <laughs> like, I'm not leaving here with nothing. And by that, you meant money? I mean, anything. I was, I literally was empty handed. And in Jack's car, I've got a suitcase full of like designer clothes and stuff. So I'm like, if I, I'm going to leave here with something, like I cannot leave here with nothing to show for all these years, all the work that I put in, all the lies I believed, all the, everything. Right. Cause it had been, it had been like around three years at this point. Yeah. It had been over three years since I had met Jack and started talking to him and right out about three years that I had been in New York. And I was just, I was infuriated. I had figured out that he didn't really care that everything he was saying, it didn't add up. Like, you can't tell me that you love me and punch me in the face in the same like three hour span. Like that doesn't work. This doesn't make, I've, I've tried and I thought you were going to change and I thought you were going to be who you said, but so he finally gets there to pick me up and I get in the car and I'm crying because I'm in so much pain because I've just gone through all these procedures and stuff. And, you know, my, <laughs> my crotch is on fire. My kidneys are in pain and swollen and just everything is like, and he has the nerve to say, he said, I don't give a fuck. You and that doctor can get out and make my money. And I just remember sitting here thinking like, there's no way, there's no way that he's serious right now. And he reaches across um, I was bawling my eyes out because I'm just, I, I'm so angered by everything that he's saying that I'm crying now. And he backhands me for crying and he hits me with his pinky ring and cuts my eyeball open. He hit me so hard on the left side of my face, the right side of my nose starts bleeding. So now he's like, wipe the blood off. He reaches into the back, grabs a double bag out and throws out onto the sidewalk. And he reaches in his pocket and grabs some cash and like shoves it in my hand. And he's like, grab yourself something to eat before you go make my money. And I just remember thinking, I'm done, man. I can't do this anymore. I just can't. I'm, this is the last time that I'm going to cry to you and think that you care. And I'm in so much pain right now. There was no way I was going to go make him any money. Not with my body. <laughs> it just was not going to happen that night. And I knew what was going to come in the morning if I didn't have the money. I had $7 in cash is what he had handed to me. And I walked into the train station where I was supposed to change my clothes and get some food. And it was $7 for a ticket on the train to Manhattan. And I thought, okay, let's just see what happens. I've got to, I'm just going to, worst case, either way I'm getting beat. So do I take a chance at getting out or not? <laughs> and so I, I hop on the train. I go to Manhattan. I'm walking around crying with my duffel bag. My nose is still bleeding. My eyes all tore up because he hit me. And this man stops me and he's like, why are you crying? And I was like, what? And he's like, look, he goes, I can tell you're not homeless. You're clean. You know, so he goes, so why are you crying? What's going on? 
And I like verbally diarrheaed the whole last three years plus in like five seconds. And he's like, come with me. And, you know, I'm like, I mean, what else could happen at this point? Right. So let's go. So I go with this gentleman. He takes me to his like high rise apartment in Manhattan. He lets me take a shower. He cooks me dinner. He gives me $50 in cash. And he says, my wife is going to be home from work soon. And I'm not going to be able to explain why you are in our house. So I need you to go. He's like, but I hope that I've been able to help you. And I just remember thinking like, there's no way this person is human. A man with good intentions who wants to help. Yeah. And had every, I was almost as vulnerable at that point as I was when I got there. And he could have taken all advantage of me. I was, I just didn't care so much at that point. I was like, whatever, (laughs) whatever happens, happens. And so I took that $50 and I went to the, the bus station and I got a bus to Philly because it was only 20 bucks it would get me out of town uh, and it would leave me with some money left over. And Jack wouldn't have known where you were going either. Right. Yeah. And it was just far enough away that it would have taken him. Manhattan is so big. I didn't think he would have been able to find me there. I mean, you can't just drive around and find somebody. It's not a small town. So I just thought if I can get a couple hours away, he really is not going to be able to drive around and find me. Like, (laughs) let me just get out of town. And as soon as I got on the bus, um, I did have one of the phones that I was using while I was there. And I Googled trafficking hotline. Because I'm like, there's got to be something, right? Somebody's got something. And up popped the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And so I called them and they were able to coordinate a plane ticket to get me out. And they set me up with a contact that they had as someone who provides services for trafficking victims. And as long as we're talking about the National Human Trafficking Hotline, I want to give their number out right now. That's 888-373-7888. That's for phone calls. Or you can text. The text number is 233-733. And so you can just text the word help or some other word just to, to that text number and someone will be, will want to help you. Yeah. I think you can send about anything to that text message number and somebody will reply and get back with you. They're very discreet. They're very good about making sure that you're in a place that you can talk before they ask you for any details. And they have trained professionals that are available 24 seven. So they are definitely a great resource. And I'll, I'll mention that number again at the end of the show and we'll have it in the show notes as well. Awesome. So you were able to contact them and And they got me out. Um, They got me further away. The National Human Trafficking Hotline was really great about making sure that they got me in with somebody who was working with an accredited program for trafficking victims. And so they referred me to this woman and I got in contact with her personally. After that, the National Human Trafficking Hotline didn't really have any involvement once they kind of handed me over to her. She coordinated with meeting up with me. I got to this other state and was there. She picked me up. We went to her house. And this is a woman who was experienced, who knew what to do because she had, yeah. she did this. Okay. Yeah. This woman was actually the founder of a very well-known um, trafficking survivor program. They have multiple houses available for survivors that are safe houses that are 
not on maps and don't have addresses. And, and it's a great program. Unfortunately, when the National Human Trafficking Hotline referred me to her, they did not know that she had just recently relapsed and was on drugs and was not actively involved in her own ministry. So I was re-trafficked. I went to a woman who then used me for a discount on her crack and I was there for several weeks in her house before I was like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> I'm done. I'm not staying as long as I did last time. I learned my lesson. And I ran in the middle of the night to a 24-hour gas station that had a subway attached. And I sat there until I got a hold of the actual program that I was supposed to have been referred to. And they came and picked me up from the gas station and took me to the safe house. And I was actually saved then. You have to, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about the sequence of events. You, you, you have to be thinking, wow, what could be, what's, what's next? Yeah, it's insane. You know? And how bad can it get? I don't know if maybe like trauma just makes you a trauma magnet. Unfortunately, it was normal for me at that point. It was like, yeah, this is what happens. Everything falls apart. <laughs> give it five minutes just hold on it's coming <laughs> so I, unfortunately it's given me a lot of trust issues in life it's something i still deal with to this day that's certainly understandable and yet you keep going you're you you keep moving forward so they got you to a a safe place yep and they were able to kind of help me get my life back together a little bit i told them i wanted to be near my my older child and so they were able to set up housing and get that move coordinated and get me in contact with someone who was familiar with trafficking in my home state. It was able to kind of move home, be near my child. Then I also had a child as soon as I got out of the trafficking, just because coming out of that lifestyle where all you do is talk to men and have sex every single day. When you come back into the real world, it's like, what am I supposed to do every day? Like, what do people do when they wake up? First of all, I'm sleeping at night, which is weird. I'm awake when the sun is out. And so there's just a whole kind of, you've got to relearn how to live life. I spent three and a half years isolated from squares. That's what Jack used to call them. Anybody who lived in the regular world and worked a regular job and paid taxes. So I spent three years in this alternate universe where sex and money and drugs and alcohol like rules the world. And so then to come out of that and I'm like, um, I have no affection. I'm back to being alone. I don't know how to receive love or, <laughs> you know, have a healthy relationship. So what do I do? I'm going to keep sleeping around. And it ended me up with a second beautiful child. So I'm not mad, but I've also learned my lesson on that. I'm very single. I might be single for the rest of forever from this. It leaves me plenty of time. I, I have time to do college and work a job and be a mom and run a household. But I have, I, I hand out red flags like Halloween candy because I, I cannot, trust anybody. I can't trust men. I can't imagine a man that has good intentions. It's just like impossible for me to wrap my head around. Except for that one in New York City. 
in Manhattan. Yeah, except for that one. And, then that, and of course, he's married. Yeah, and of course, he's married. He's married and, and faithful to his wife. <laughs> so I'm like, what is what is going on? And I was at that point, I was just like, whatever, take advantage of me. Uh, and that was the only one who didn't. How how long were you at this um, the safe place? Was that like a group home? There were other victims there as well? Yeah, it was like a group place. Um, I think they can hold up to 12 women. They don't house male victims at that place. So they were able to hold up to 12 women there. And it was it fluctuated. Some came and stayed for a long time. Some didn't. Some were there on court order. Some weren't. They help you address every single area. They keep you safe. There's no phones there. There's no internet there. There's no, there's just a lake and grass and therapists <laughs> and a lot of Jesus. It's just, you know, it's, it's an intensive, you know, you got to undo the brainwashing. I spent a lot of years mourning the relationship that I thought that I had having to accept that that wasn't real that it was all fake it was all a lie it was all a selling point just to get me to do what he wanted me to do so that I could pay for his life when did you first see your child again I had been out for probably two or three months before I could even face him uh, he was old enough that he could comprehend at that point. So having to look my kid in the face and say, I screwed up. I thought I was doing what was best for you. And and I made a huge mistake and I cost us years of our life. Like That's just not something that I could face right away. I had to to get myself healed a little bit first. But as soon as I could, I did every day. And by that time, your child was five, six, yeah. something like that? Yeah, well into school and, and having friends and living a life that I wasn't involved in. But you're on track to regain custody. Yes. Yep. I am putting everything in place, you know, over the next few months. And the judge has looked over everything and I think has decided that they're going to give him back. So it's been a long road, a lot of work, a lot of legal battles, a lot of arguing my case and my point. I had to, the FBI had to come in and say, yes, like she's not lying. Like we have proof that this actually happened because it's unbelievable. Like when you put it all out in one line, it's unbelievable that this much stuff could happen to one person. <laughs> It really is. I mean, I, I can imagine people listening to this story or listening to your podcast and thinking, come on. Like how that's... much unlucky. I told my therapist the other day, I said, I am so glad that we meet as often as we do. Because if there was not somebody here to like witness this stuff happening as it's happening, like nobody would believe me. You, you you were connected, you got connected with a church mm -hmm. and they helped you out quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. They um, really stepped in and kind of showed me what 
unconditional love looks like. I had never experienced that in my entire life for someone to love me and not expect anything in return and not have a reason why or a, you know, a side spin for, you know, there's like, like I'm always waiting for the catch and that just wasn't there. They stepped in and paid my bills so that I could take a maternity leave whenever I had my second child. They bought me a vehicle when the transmission in my other vehicle blew up. They have just kind of really been the love that I can imagine that Jesus is, you know, should be. And what, what I imagined all the men in my life were going to be, you know, what I was really looking for, they've kind of stepped in and been. And so it's been a really refreshing, like, wow, there are good people left out there. <laughs> so your life is going the right direction again. I mean, you, you're in school, you're working in a career or you're working toward a career and you got to be pretty happy now. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's, it's kind of a sense of normal again, whatever normal I think I might achieve. There's not, it's never going to be like it was before. The amount of PTSD that I have now from this situation, especially knowing that Jack is still out there and, you know, it's walking around freely and could try to attempt to contact me at any point. It's a terrifying, I spend my life looking over my shoulder, but that's just a little side part to the rest of my life. That's still happening. I've made a place for myself in the death care industry. I've been able to step in and help other victims. I'm going to be able to use that to help other victims in the future. There are so many women that just go unclaimed every year. Their bodies are just left sitting because their families don't know that they're there. and Nobody can identify them. And that could have been me. And so to be able to, to take this experience and use it for something positive, I need it to have a purpose. I want it to have a purpose. I want to heal other women who have been through this. I want to prevent other women from getting into this. And I want to just let it serve a purpose. I think that's the biggest part of the healing for me. As soon as Jack is gone, <laughs> however that happens, as soon as Jack is gone, and as soon as I can kind of show some progress, I think from this, I I'm just, I'm excited to see it change other people's lives. You've got a lot of good stuff on your horizon, I think. Thank you. I'm excited. Have you been back in contact with your dad at all? Uh, minimally, not really. Does he know what you went through? Uh, he's heard it. I don't know that he fully believes it. I don't know that he's, he hasn't cared enough to ask me about it. So I don't, I don't fully know his opinion. I'm sure he's heard from family members and, and friends and what, but there hasn't been any in-depth conversation. Well, let's talk about your podcast. It's called Bought by the Hour. Yes. And what made you decide to tell this story in your own podcast? I think so. Number one, it's just super therapeutic for me. It's it's nice to be able to sit down and talk about this and not have a face to look at because sometimes that reaction to the story makes it hard to tell. So to be able to just say what I want to say and freely speak about it and not have to hear the response. <laughs> you know, people can can say whatever they want to the radio. You know, on top of that, I just I really think that for people to know that this can happen. And not only can it happen, it can happen to you. 
and to know what the warning signs of grooming look like, to know what the manipulation looks like, to know what a narcissist sounds like and says and what gaslighting is. And there are so many aspects of this that it, with some education, I think that we could we could heal some people, we could prevent some of this from happening, and we could just, again, give it some purpose. Obviously, you're doing that with your own podcast. We should mention the, again, it's called Bought by the Hour. You've got a Facebook page for the podcast. It's just facebook.com slash bought by the hour. And people can send you a message there or they can listen to your podcast and people can actually leave you a voicemail message there. Is that right? Yeah, they can leave me a message and then I can feature that message in future episodes. Well, we'll have links to all that in the show notes uh, so people can find that. One final question. If someone's listening to this right now, and they're in a situation where they're being trafficked, what's your advice to that person? My first thing I would say is you need to call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Whether it's calling or texting, you need to get a hold of somebody. Whether it's giving them your name, your date of birth, who you are, sending them a recent photo of yourself so that if anything happens, that we can identify you and find you and find your family. And then from there, they'll help you take steps to getting out. It doesn't have to be immediate, but there's always someone there to talk, even if you just want to figure out what your options are. If you're currently being trafficked or you suspect it's happening to someone you know, please call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The number again is 888-373-7888 if you want to call. If you prefer to text, you can send a text message to 233-733. And those numbers will be in the show notes. For me, this episode was really big and really important. Part of that was because we got to hear firsthand from Jill what happens to someone being trafficked. I'm amazed at the courage she has to not only survive everything she's been through, but to now come out and tell the world this story and be so vulnerable and transparent. You know, it would be really easy for her to blame everything on the fact that she was abused from childhood, and that would be legitimate. But she's the first to admit she made some bad decisions, and she paid for those mistakes. But in addition to that, there were so many aspects to this story I feel like I could have had Jill on for another hour asking her questions. And because of that, I would guess that there might be things you want to know that I didn't get to ask. Well, guess what? Jill is in our podcast listener Facebook group. So you can look for the Facebook post about this episode and just leave a comment or a question and she'll see it and reply. She also might use your question in a future episode of her podcast, but she wouldn't use your full name, of course. So if you aren't already in the Facebook group, you can join at whatwasthatlike.com Facebook. Once again, Jill's podcast is called Bought by the Hour, and the website is anchor.fm slash bought by the hour. As I mentioned in our conversation, she talks about things in her podcast that we didn't cover here today. So I definitely recommend you subscribe to her show to get those details. That link will be in the show notes as well. And now we're at this week's listener story. It's in keeping with the theme of this week's podcast, Human Trafficking. 
Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. This incident happened on the west coast of Canada while I was being held captive by human traffickers who also traded in weapons and drugs. The traffickers had taken my shoes, my ID, and my jacket, and most of the time kept me confined to a single room. In trying to gain my compliance, the traffickers used food deprivation, sleep deprivation, sexual assault, and other violence. There was always someone directly guarding me, and usually four or more traffickers in the residence at any given time. When there are people around to witness psychological, sexual, or physical violence, and those people do nothing to stop or object to the infliction of harm, it makes that mistreatment even more intimidating and brainwashing. I had three things that were helping me navigate the situation. I knew how to disassociate from pain in my body. I was determined to do whatever it took to survive. And I had escaped human trafficking before. On the night of this particular incident, no amount of disassociation or determination could save me. One moment I was being tossed around the room and beaten, the next I was being strangled on the floor. Fighting back was inefficient. My limbs became sluggish, then lost function. I watched my arms fall to the floor and thought, oh, my arms aren't working. Couldn't move my legs. I knew what that meant, but couldn't do anything about it. My head lolled to the side. I saw a piece of lint on the carpet, just a wee fluff of carpet lint, and thought, I'm going to die looking at this carpet, and no one will know what happened to me. Mom's going to be so disappointed. It felt sad more than scared. Vision went red and then black. Last thing I remember feeling was that sadness, and his hands around my neck. I woke up on that same carpet, with the culprit watching me to find out if I was dead. Waking up, I was very disoriented. I didn't know where I was or have any recollection of what had happened. I remember looking around the room, trying to remember who had brought me to this strange place and if I was on drugs, because my body felt so strange. It wasn't moving properly, and my thoughts were mushy. When I finally could move, everything hurt. And then I remembered. That was when I realized that resistance wasn't going to build my escape, that I had to feign subservience until the traffickers got sloppy. So that's what I did. And luckily, the plan worked. After I escaped, I started studying martial arts and learned how to defend myself and how to avoid being in that kind of situation again. But I warn you this. It can happen to anyone. Human traffickers are scum. Thank you guys so much for being here this week. I cannot wait for you to hear the next episode. It will be released June 18th. We are having a special guest speaker. Her name is P.I. Venus Winslow. Please look her up. um, Get familiar. I'm really excited for you to hear that interview. Um, Until then, please, if you can like, share, post, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you guys got, I would appreciate it. Thank you, and I will see you next week.